Welcome to Christchurch Manchester Sermon Podcast. CCM is one church that meets every Sunday in various locations across Manchester. For more information about who we are or about our Sunday meetings, please visit www.christchurchmanchester.com. A number of years ago, I was training for a half marathon. Uh, Believe it or not, that's actually something that I have done on occasion. Uh, And during that training, uh, the whole point is you teach yourself to run further and further and try and increase your pace and all of that sort of thing. And I started experiencing pain in the side of my knee. And uh, one particular run, it was so bad, I was six miles from home, I thought, I can't get home. So I had to phone a taxi to take me home again, which was was a low moment. Uh, And I left it for a week and I thought, no, I'll go again, I'll be fine. And I started running and it hurt again, exactly the same way. And I knew that it was a proper problem with my, with my knee, but I didn't understand what the problem was. So I went to the doctor, got a physio, and he explained to me, used diagrams and like models of knees and everything, explaining how there was a, a particular uh, muscle in my knee which was um, swollen, that's why it was causing pain. And he basically said, look, do all of these exercises and you'll strengthen the muscles in your leg and in your knee, and that will improve the situation. And he was exactly right. That is what happened. I did the exercises, and it solved the problem. Now, the reality is I couldn't fix the problem until I knew what the problem was. I could have, and I've done this on other injuries, just decided, let's just run through it. It will be fine. Run through the pain, Tim. Don't be a wuss which made it worse every time, Uh, I could have decided, actually, what I'm going to do is I'm just going to medicate. I'll just keep taking drugs any time it hurts. So actually, all that does is remove the pain. It doesn't actually stop, uh, doesn't actually help you to recover properly. Uh, And so I realized that I needed a, a proper diagnosis so I could fully understand the problem so then I could go about trying to fix the problem. And we're going to start a brand new series this evening looking at the book of Ecclesiastes, which is my absolute favourite book. I love this book. And we're going to spend a few weeks leading up to the summer looking at the book of Ecclesiastes. And the reason that I want us to get into this particular book is because I think it helps us to diagnose the problem. Ecclesiastes goes deep into the question of what life is is for. In fact, I think Ecclesiastes asks the deep questions that the rest of the Bible tries to answer. And the author of Ecclesiastes wants to diagnose the problem. He really wants to understand it, to really get into the nature and difficulty of the problem. Now, it's a pretty unusual book, this one. In, uh, if you compare it to all of the other books of the Bible, it kind of stands out on its own. You can read it and think it's a little bit dark, a little bit brooding, this book. Maybe it's even, you think, that's quite hard to understand, uh, and you, it's easy to dismiss things when it's um, not easy to understand. But actually, I think it's packed full of wisdom. Uh, I think it has incredible truths that are relevant to our world today. This is a book that could be two and a half to 3,000 years old, but has incredible amount of modern wisdom in it. So over the next few weeks, we're going to attempt to pick out any number of those uncomfortable truths and allow them to challenge us uh, and to make us think and make us question. Uh, And today we're going to start in the very first chapter, we're going to start right at the beginning, and we're simply going to ask, what is the problem? 
What is the problem? Uh, and the, all of the Bible verses will appear up behind me. Anusha's going to work very hard for me this evening, flicking through the Bible verses and keeping right up to date with the words that I say, aren't you, Anoush? Yeah, he nodded aggressively and with confidence. Right, so let's read Ecclesiastes 1, and we'll start in verse 1. And it says, The words of the preacher, the son of David's king in Jerusalem. Vanity of vanities, says the preacher. Vanity of vanities, all is vanity. What does man gain by all the toil at which he toils under the sun? A generation goes and a generation comes but the earth remains forever. The sun rises and the sun goes down and hastens to the place where it rises. The wind blows to the south and goes round to the north. Around and around goes the wind and on its circuits the wind returns. A stream runs to the sea, but the sea is not full to the place where the streams flow. There they flow again. All things are full of weariness and man cannot utter it. The eye is not satisfied with seeing, nor the ear filled with hearing. What has been is what will be, and what has been done is what will be done, and there is nothing new under the sun. Is there a thing of which it is said, see, this is new? It has been already in the ages before us. There is no remembrance of former things, nor will there be any remembrance of latter things yet to be among those who come after. There you go. Just pause there for a moment. Take a deep breath. Fascinatingly complex book, Ecclesiastes. Now, it does read a little bit like it was one of Radiohead's earlier albums, and you like, or that Morrissey wrote it on a particularly bad week, but actually asks some pretty huge questions for us. And it does offer us some answers, but really it kind of points us in a direction, and we have to think for ourselves a little bit because it's really about asking the question, really plumbing the depth of them. Uh, And it is a book of ancient wisdom, so it is a a very old piece of literature and art and poetry, but actually asks some really very, very modern questions and ponders some very modern problems. So this is a book, Ecclesiastes, is about human existence. So it dares to ask a very modern question, Does life have any meaning at all? It then claims, actually, to have no great answers to whether life has any meaning. And sometimes, in fact, relatively often, suggests that life, in fact, may not have that much meaning. It's also about the fear of meaninglessness. So previous generations... Uh, perhaps in our, in our part of the world, previous Western generations may have been immensely scared of death and particularly of hell and condemnation. That, that would have been a, a big fear. That would have been a big motivation for how to live in life, the, the fear of hell, the fear of being condemned. Uh, and that isn't particularly a modern fear anymore. We don't think in those terms. But modern generations, actually, we become immensely worried and concerned about whether our life has purpose or meaning. So I will regularly have conversations with people, and I'm sure you have them amongst yourselves, about you know, what you want to do with your life. Perhaps we might put it in quite Christian terms and say, what do I feel called to, or, or what do I want to achieve with life? And really the question of what meaning or purpose do I want? It's a very modern question. Ecclesiastes is also about life without God. 
Now, if you were to read this whole book in one go, you would realise that God says nothing in the book of Ecclesiastes. God is quiet in this book. We always think of the book of Job as being particularly despairing and about suffering and how to deal with that. But actually, in the book of Job, God speaks a lot. There is a back and forth. There is relationship and conversation there. But in Ecclesiastes, God is very quiet. Our modern world, the world that we live in, has been built without God hasn't it? We have removed God from the equation. Uh, Either we uh, no longer allow him to speak because we don't believe that he does speak, or we only allow him to speak into a very small part of our life or our society. So Ecclesiastes kind of plums the depths of that and spells out what actually a life without God really means, what it really is. And Ecclesiastes is also very, very honest. It is a deeply honest book, uh, it's easy to dismiss it as, uh, as being a bit despairing and think, actually, we just don't want to think about those things. Thank you very much. However, when we face our problems honestly and we try to truly understand them, and just maybe the problems that we face as individuals or as a society, as humanity, actually, it's being honest about these things which helps us move through them. If we're honest about the falsehoods that we continue to live with or perhaps the idols that we put up in place of God's, If we're honest about those problems, then perhaps real change can happen. So this book is for those of us who've perhaps never thought about God before, or for those of us who have forgotten what God is, or perhaps for those of us who are having a hard time and struggling to work out where we put God into those moments. So Ecclesiastes asks this question, or asks the questions that the rest of the Bible attempts to answer. But you must have the question before the answer, right? That's the whole point. You must look deeply at the issue before you propose a solution. So according to the the author of Ecclesiastes, what is the problem? What's he driving after here? So let's just work our way through some of these verses, and I think they make it clear to us. Uh, And then over the next few weeks, we'll dig even deeper. And what's the, what's the real problem here? Well, verse 2 tells us. It says, vanity of vanities, says the preacher. Vanity of vanities, all is vanity. All is vanity. Well, that's a strange. What, what does he mean by that? Well, vanity in Ecclesiastes means something that is useless, has no profit to it. It literally means to chase after the winds. It is impossible to catch the wind. So if you were to go to Platfields on a windy day and think, I'm going to stop the windy day by trying to catch the winds, you can't do it. It's impossible, isn't it? Vanity is a word of desperation. And we might refer to vanity as perhaps somebody who takes too many selfies or whatever it might be. We put it in that sense. But as Ecclesiastes means, it's something that's been completely pointless. And the preacher, he repeats this phrase, Vanity of vanities. And it's almost the exact opposite of God, vanities of vanities. It's almost the opposite of holy of holies. And the holy of holies was the place in the temple where you went to meet God. That's where God was. It was the the most purposeful place in all of creation. That's where you could encounter God. And vanity of vanities is the opposite of that. In effect, the author, he's crying out, pointless of pointless. Everything is pointless. 
So I'm going to end the sermon there. Welcome. We're going to have a time of worship. Matt is going to lead us through um, while we all just quietly look at our shoes. What does he mean by that? Well, he doesn't give us lots at the moment, okay? He is trying to plumb the depths of the problem. And actually, he wants us to be shocked. You're meant to read this, and it's meant to cause you to stop. You're meant to feel uncomfortable. If, uh, if one of your friends was to come up to you after church, or maybe they'd send you a WhatsApp message, and they said, everything in my life is pointless, you would be worried about them, wouldn't you? In that moment, you'd think, ah, we, okay, that's not a good thing to say. I'm, I'm concerned for them. You'd think they are having a bad time. It's a shocking thing to say. We are meant to react to this idea. Now, even you, you feel like perhaps you want to argue with the idea. What do you mean everything is pointless? Who do you, what, who are you that you think you can say that everything is pointless? Do you think everything about me is pointless as well? What, what are you trying to claim? Well, at the start of chapter one, the author introduces himself, kind of says, this is who I am, calls himself the preacher. He says, I'm the son of David, the king in Jerusalem. So he's claiming to be King Solomon, one of the most famous, most successful, one of the richest kings of Israel. Israel was at the very peak of its power under his rule and reign, and actually after him began its slow decline. And this claim is a very deliberate strategy, okay, to say, actually, look, this problem affects everyone. No one's insulated from this problem. Now, whether it was actually Solomon or not who wrote this book, it doesn't really matter particularly, because the point is the same. It's suggesting, look, even if the most rich, most powerful, most well-resourced, most successful, the person who's got everything on tap, everything they could possibly want, they find pointlessness. His kingdom was the largest. He was considered the most wise. People would travel to meet Solomon, to hear his wisdom, to be near him. So for him to claim, pointless. Everything is pointless. Look at all the stuff I've got. It's pointless. It says something profound in itself. This is not someone who's down on their luck. This is not someone who's been horribly mistreated, had a very difficult life. This is someone who has succeeded in everything they have ever done. And as we go through Ecclesiastes, we find Solomon actually claiming to have tried everything. It's almost like an experiment. I've, I've tried everything under the sun. I've tried wisdom, pleasure, wealth, power, uh, duty and honour. I've tried religion. And his conclusion from all of these things are, well, it's vanity. It's pointless. It's almost like he's done the research, trying to find hope and meaning, and then dismissed all of it. And he stays with this theme throughout this book. He keeps on coming back around and through it and then through it. And it's a challenge to us to listen and hear, even though it's difficult. Now, you might be sitting there thinking, okay, that's fine, Tim, but my life is not pointless. I do not feel that my work is vanity or my relationships are pointless. I feel there are lots of things that I do that have a point to them, which is fair enough. And the preacher, what he wants us to do is get to the very roots of the why of our activities, of our motivations. He wants us to ask really deeply, profoundly, thoughtfully, why on earth do we think we are here? What is the meaning to all of this? And he expands on this. He talks about toil. 
In verse 3, he writes, What does a man gain by all the toil at which he toils under the sun? And the word gain, it suggests profit and loss, doesn't it? What do you win from your toil? What do you get out of your toil? And that's ultimately what he's asking. And perhaps you might think about your your job in this moment. You think of toil. That's often the first place we go to when we think about the work that we do. And you might think, well, even if I don't enjoy it every day, it gives me money. And that means that I can buy food and somewhere to live. And maybe I can save some money. And maybe I can enjoy the the fruit of having money at the most basic level. Perhaps that's a, a thing. However, he isn't really asking us that. He's not really asking us what we do to earn enough money. He's not really asking us to think of ourselves as economic individuals in the world. He's not saying that particularly. He's asking where we gain meaning or purpose for our toil under the sun. It's an eternal question. And to humans, what do you, where is your eternity? And we are hardwired to think about that, actually. We want our lives to count for something. We do, all of us do. It's hardwired into who we are. We want to believe that actually we live for a purpose and for a reason and we look for that purpose and reason. And actually Jesus knew that as well. In in the Gospel of Mark, he says, for what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? He's asking exactly the same question as the preacher. What are you living for? And the question is not whether or not we should toil. He's not saying, should you all just give up work and just slowly waste away? That's not what he means at all. We've all got to work. Everybody has to earn money, has to take their place in the world. We're meant to do that. But he's talking about the meaning that we attach to it. And as we read through Ecclesiastes, we'll often come across this phrase, under the sun. And it's a wonderful phrase because it makes us think of the whole universe and the sun being really high up and it covers everything in life, everything under the sun. But actually, as he meant it, it meant like a restricted view of just what we do on earth, just our physical reality. Only our views that are bound to to our lives, our short lives, and not really having any eternal implications at all. He's saying, well, look, we are short-term thinkers if we're just thinking about everything that happens under the sun, we've, we've given no thought to, to God or, or eternity at all. So what does he mean by toil if we're thinking about everything under the sun? What does he mean? Well, the preacher will go on and he'll identify wisdom and pleasure, wealth, power, duty and honour and religion as toil. These are the things that he keeps coming back to. And there's a brilliant little book by a guy called Peter Kreeft who is a Catholic a philosopher who writes about uh, the book of Song of Songs, Ecclesiastes, and the book of uh, Job. It's a brilliant little book. It's uh, really easy to read. But he, he describes these uh, different toils in a few different ways. He says, look, wisdom is a philosophy to fill your mind. And actually, we're surrounded and bombarded with wisdom in the modern world, aren't we? Constantly, there are different ways of thinking about the world and the way that we behave as humans and philosophies for life. And actually, these are quite, we have to toil with these. And then there is pleasure as well, which he describes as hedonism to fill your body. And actually, we live in a city which loves hedonism, loves to party and loves to live in the good of that. But he's saying that there is a toil to that. 
He talks about wealth as materialism to fill your pockets. And again, we live in a city, we look around, we see people toiling and toiling to fill their pockets, to live for material things. He talks about duty and honour is to fill your conscience. And he talks about religion to fill your spirit. All of them are toil, actually. And if we toil and strain for present day rewards, we view them under the sun but have no thought of eternity, no thought of the impact on our soul, on who we are, it becomes meaningless. And why is that? Well, he keeps explaining to us. He continues, he talks about the repetition of life. So in verse 4, he he talks about how a generation goes and a generation comes. He talks about how the sun rises and then it goes down and then it rises again. And how the wind blows from the south and then it goes to the north. And then guess what? It comes back round and does the same thing again and again. Or a stream runs to the sea, but the sea never quite seems to fill up, does it? There is a repetition in life. Uh, a few summers ago, we went on holiday to the, the northeast of England, which is just a brilliant part of the world. And we were out on the coast. And uh, out there, you're knee-deep in castles. There are castles everywhere, some of which are in reasonable condition, some of which are, are completely ruined and falling down. And uh, we were sitting on the beach, and I, I, right on the other side of the bay was a castle. And so the next day, we walked around to have a look at this castle, and it's very tumbled down. And they're my favourite, because it's just, you're trying to pick out where you can see perhaps there was life there, and you can see where it looked like there was a floor or a doorway, and you're looking at a particular area, and there's a plaque that says, this was probably a kitchen, uh, but we don't know. And what you realise is that people built this thing and then lived in this thing. And usually we know about one or two very rich people who may have funded it, a king or a queen or, or something like that. But the families that built their lives around these castles and lived in them and worked in them and perhaps were dominated by them and it, it, it affected them deeply, we have no idea who they are. We know nothing about them at all. Our lives move very quickly and then we drift from memory. My aunt uh, loves doing um, our family tree. She likes working out our family tree and she's got hundreds of years back and she was explaining it to uh, the kids last time we saw them and we realised that you're talking about people that lived two or three hundred years ago so not even that long ago and you're having a conversation about these people and then you realise Actually, I'm probably the first person who's talked about Great Uncle Barry for 150 years. People slowly drift from memory. And Psalms talks about this. says the years of our life are 70 or even by reason of strength 80, yet their span is but toil and trouble. They are soon gone and we fly away. We drift from memory. Even the great heroes of the Bible actually drifted from memory. In Exodus, it talks about a new king appeared over Egypt who did not know Joseph. Joseph was a, Joseph was a dude for Egypt. I mean, his faithfulness, his skill, his leadership, he saved them from famine. He was an incredible leader, like, in like one of the most important political leaders in one of the most important nations on the planet. And what happened to him? They got a new king. They forgot him. He drifted from memory. If we look to this present world for our meaning, for our purpose, then actually there is futility there. There is vanity there. It's like trying to catch the wind in Platfield Park. 
And the preacher also talks about creation a little bit. He explains, actually, look, look at the activity of the sun, of the winds, of the sea. They are a bit futile. It goes round in a, in a permanent cycle, and their jobs are never complete. And the Apostle Paul, he wrote something similar in, in the book of Romans. He said, look, for the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly. And you can almost hear the writer of Ecclesiastes, the preacher, shouting, yes, it's all vanity, Paul. You're right, vanity of vanities. And to live in this cycle actually has an effect on us. We become weary. And he explains this in verse 8. He says, look, all things are full of weariness. A man cannot utter it. He talks about how the eye is not fulfilled by seeing and the ear not even by hearing. Uh, for things go round. There is nothing new under the sun. Is that, do we, can, can we say that anything is new anymore? No, it's already been done. We don't remember it last time. And what we're doing now probably won't be remembered. He's spelling out to us what the problem is. Everything is vanity. Our toil, whether it's wisdom or pleasure whether it's duty, whether it is religion, whatever it might be, even creation itself is stuck in vanity. And he's right. He's describing a fallen, broken world. He's describing a life without gods. He's describing our attempts to find meaning and purpose when we subtract eternity. And that is... Our whole society at the moment, we are a society that has taken eternity out. We, we still live in quite a Christian and religious way. We've just removed God from it entirely. And what do we leave ourselves with? Well, futility. So what is the answer? Now, Ecclesiastes asks the questions that the rest of the Bible answers. And when he says vanity of vanities, he's asking, what is the point of all of this? Where is the meaning? Where can we find it? Actually, the Bible often talks about this stuff. Talks about how God planned and then broke into his damaged and destroyed creation so that actually he could restore it to its true purpose. And what Ecclesiastes reminds us is that we are actually desperate for that meaning. We do look for that meaning. And actually, we do have meaning We're desperate for purpose and we look for it in different parts of life because actually we do have purpose. Now we might try and self-medicate these things if we run after wisdom or pleasure, maybe or power or duty or religion or whatever it might be. But that's because God created us to desire purpose and meaning. Actually a few chapters later in Ecclesiastes he will write, also he put eternity into man's hearts. We are made to desire eternity. We're actually not meant to live just under the sun. We're meant to live in eternity. God planned to break in and restore this eternity. Actually, he planned to break in and end the futility of life, to end the futility of creation without him involved. Actually, there's another prophet in the Old Testament called Isaiah, And he spelt this out in Isaiah 9. He said, look, the people who walked in darkness, perhaps they walked in vanity and pointlessness, they have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in a land of deep darkness, on them has a light shone. And then he jumps forward a few verses and he says this, 
For to us a child is born, to us a son is given. It's the great Christmas, a bit of Isaiah, isn't it? And the government shall be upon his shoulders, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace, in brackets, the person who brings a point to creation, the person who restores meaning, the person who takes vanity away. It says, even of the increase of his government and of peace, actually there won't be an end on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it, to uphold it with justice, with righteousness, from this time forth and forevermore, the zeal of the Lord of hosts will do it. He will restore creation. God would send Jesus to break us out of that darkness of futility, the darkness of vanity and pointlessness, and actually shine his light on us. Jesus would restore purpose to us. And that purpose is that his rule and reign won't end. That is the purpose that we can live in, not the tiny little things that we construct for ourselves, but actually his great purpose. And in that, he restores righteousness. He brings justice back into his creation. It's no longer just rolling over day by day where we look at the injustice and suffering of the world and think, well, when the sun comes up tomorrow, it will just be the same. Actually, we will no longer toil pointlessly in the search for meaning because actually we're now part of his advancing kingdom, not pointlessly going in circles, but actually being taken somewhere. And instead of trying to gain meaning in all the different toils that the preacher lays out for us, the false idols of, of wisdom, pleasure, power, religion, duty, instead we're pointed towards the light that is Jesus. And just to finish, the Apostle Paul, he sums it up like this. He says, look, whatever gain I had, I count this as loss for Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss. Everything is pointless. Everything is rubbish. Everything is vanity, perhaps, because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things. And I now count them all as rubbish, pointless, perhaps. Maybe even he thought, maybe I count them all as vanity. wonder if Ecclesiastes was in his mind. So what? So in order that I may gain Christ. 